Is it cold outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Love the law, did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything. Hello everybody and welcome to uh, this edition of uh, Ask Alan. As you know, this is uh, a show where you can ask anything you want. And uh, we're going to talk today with uh, Beverly Robertson, who's the president of the, Mem the Greater Memphis Chamber of Commerce. Um, I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. Uh, Beverly has had a, uh, a tremendous uh, life uh, and career um, working uh, here in Memphis and all over. We're going to find out about that. She was... Uh, executive director of the National Civil Rights Museum and now president of the chamber and is one of those folks that governors and mayors and captains of industry, when they have a problem that needs to be solved, they pick up the phone and call her. Uh, and, I, and I hope she doesn't mind, but I'm going to say that she's a friend of mine and I'm proud to say that she's a friend of mine. Beverly, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I wish that what you said before were all true. <laughs> I wish it were true, but thank you for saying it anyway. It made me feel awfully good and made my day. No, it's my pleasure. Let me let me get just get right to it. Um, you know, uh, tell me what it's uh, tell me what it's like to be the the president of the Chamber of Commerce. A lot of people hear about that organization and hear about you, but uh, I'm not sure many people know what what the day-to-day -day is. What's, uh, what's your job and what do you enjoy doing? Well, um, that's a really good question because when I came, I guess I've been there for now about a year and a half, maybe. Uh, so I'm still uh, kind of getting my feet wet. Uh, and the pandemic certainly helped me almost drown. But uh, <laughs> I'm treading water and I'm keeping things afloat. But when I first came, I actually interviewed everybody on the staff because from top to bottom, because I wanted to know if they really understood the work of the chamber. So I would ask them, what's the work of the chamber? And they would say whatever they thought it was. And what I learned is I got a lot of different opinions about the work of the chamber. So what I decided to do is simplify a definition of the chamber in a way that you just cannot possibly forget it. So I characterize the work of the chamber with three simple letters, P, E-W. For those who go to church, you know that spells pew. Uh, and so pew stands for something really important to the chamber. The E is in the center. So that stands for economic development, which means that we attract new investment and higher paying jobs into the marketplace, but we also help ex existing businesses grow and expand. So that is economic development, and that's the centerpiece of what the chamber does. Uh, the P is public policy. So we advocate for policies that help to shape a positive business operating environment. If things are not good for Memphis uh, and for business, we advocate, we, we lobby against it uh, because we want things to help promote the growth and strength of the Memphis marketplace. So that's the P in Pew, public policy. The W is workforce. And you well know that we cannot attract a great uh, organization to Memphis unless we have the people that can support the existence of that organization. So 
If I wake you up at 2 a.m. in the morning, I say, what's the work of the chamber? You better tell me pew, public <laughs> policy, economic development, and workforce development. And that's a very simple way to remember that. So I've been working in that specific lane, but I've also worked on the Regional Economic Alliance, which I love because it's a partnership between the city of Memphis, the chamber, EDGE, the county downtown commission, all of us together. So we attract uh, businesses to Memphis, but EDGE adds the incentives and, and appropriately so does the downtown commission if businesses are gonna locate downtown. But we have a partnership and that means that I can't point my finger at the city and the city, we're all in it together and we're all responsible for helping to drive the ship and create the kind of Memphis, the robust Memphis that we know we need to be able to make sure that we are securing jobs or helping people to secure jobs based on the new investment that comes into the Memphis area. Well, very good. I, I know when uh, uh, I worked uh, in the mayor's office, we worked very closely with, uh, with the chamber. And uh, I think a lot of people don't realize how involved the chamber is in uh, recruiting business, or as you say, advocating for public policy. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely the, the case. And one of the reasons that we think it's really important for people to know about it, because what people see about Memphis or read about Memphis nationally is either going to help people to be more attracted to Memphis or it will detract from Memphis. And there's been a lot of discussion about incentives and you know the things that we do, pilots, in Memphis, and one of the things that I, I felt was, look, all of us would rather not have them, but that's the cost of competition, and that's the cost of being in the game from an economic development perspective. So if we don't have them, and our neighbors to the south have them, and our neighbors to the west have them, guess where the business is going? It's not gonna come to Memphis, Tennessee. It's going into those marketplaces. So we launched something called Taking It to the Streets, so we can begin to help people clearly understand why we have pilots. That is the only tool in our economic development toolkit. We don't have a lot of money to give companies. And some people think, well, we got this big pot of money and we're throwing it at these companies and these companies are coming here. Those are all myths about it. So if you want to correct the myths, you have to go where the myths are being created. So we have taken information about the chamber to uh, communities like Orange Mound and Frazier and on my list is Hickory Hill and Cordova. And, you know, once the pandemic is over, <laughs> you know, we can really begin to expand and broaden the reach so people in the community understand. That way, when we're talking about pilots and our ability to be able to attract new businesses, you won't have a body of people screaming uh, as if that's the worst thing we could ever do. Because once that gets into the national media and goes viral, companies research us uh, as they're thinking about relocating. And we want to make sure that people clearly understand the value of this work and what this means for them. So that's why we've taken this messaging to the streets. And it has been so wildly appreciated. I've been invited back to Frazier. Uh, and uh, Van Turner, who is our commissioner on the county commission, wants me desperately to come to Hickory Hill. And we will do that, but right now is certainly not the time, but maybe after this lets up, we can do a lot more of that. Right. And as president, what is, what's your role, what's your function in the organization to, uh, 
to uh, to pew it up as uh, to borrow your phrase. <laughs> well, the the thing about leadership is we really set the strategic direction and vision for the organization. So let me share with you some of the things that we are doing now that the chamber has not done before. So we launched in October an Upskill 901 Summit. Uh, and that was a workforce summit where we had the opportunity to bring together service providers to help us uh, upskill 10,000 people for jobs that exist in the marketplace or future jobs that will be coming. Because people need to be upskilled for this new technology, whether it's robotics, artificial intelligence, the new digital age, people need to be upskilled for that. And many don't have the technical skills that are gonna be needed by companies that are gonna be coming here. Uh, so we work with people in the training and educational arena. So we bring all the players in that particular area together. We brought all the players in the Opportunity Youth, or the vast majority of them, together to talk and plan. Uh, we brought them in Opportunity Adults categories together. Uh, uh, Ex-offender category, we brought them together. And we brought together, for the first time ever, the community of faith to be able to, because they are everywhere. They know that uh, Sister Sadie's uh -uh nephew needs a job and has needed a job but he needs to upskill himself to get ready for a job. So the first day of that summit, which was a two-day summit, we invited all of these service providers and there were 300, about 300, 350 people there. They all uh, listened to the Brookings Institute. They listened to the Burning Glass Research because we anchored it in data and research. Uh, and then we did breakout sessions where these education and training folks in more tech, Tennessee Tech, all of the technical and educational folks talk together because there is a continuum of education from the time that a child is born, early childhood education, elementary, you know, kindergarten, elementary, middle school, high school, college. Uh, so we had all of them at the same table. And what they did is began to think about what they needed to do to be able to develop goals that allowed their organization to scale up their work. So now we can get them to train more people in their specific areas of focus so that we ultimately reach this 10,000 goal over the next three years. And we've already done really well. We launched it in November. We've already upskilled about 1,500 people uh, for jobs in the marketplace. And so my role as the visionary leader is to come up with, I brought that idea to the chamber when I came. The other thing that I brought to the chamber when I came was this thought leadership series where we communicate with our businesses about things that they need to know about. We did a session on unconscious bias with one of the leading unconscious bias uh, professors in the country that came in from Stanford University. Uh, and she really talked to the business community about you know, unconscious bias and the things that we don't know about, but we do. And all of us have these unconscious things that we do. You know, you don't know when you're doing them and don't recognize them, but when someone's talking about them, you get to see them and how you begin to be conscious of that. So you intentionally make decisions without that unconscious bias. Uh, we've had a session also where we brought the Kresge Foundation to the table, because as we look at uh, recovery and resetting Memphis, we know that Detroit has been reset. After a lot of the automotive companies moved away,
they're now coming back into the city thanks to the Kresge Foundation and investors from the business community that put their money on the line to redevelop. So we wanted to learn some lessons from those folks. We've got a session coming up with a guy named Benjamin Pring, who is over the Center for the World of Work. And he's gonna talk about the future of work and business post COVID-19. And that's coming up in two weeks. So it's that kind of thought leadership that we want to occur. And then for the COVID crisis, we decided that we wanted to be business information central for the business community, both small and large, to talk about the stimulus package, uh, the SBA disaster injury loan, to have webinars about it, to have legal counsel around it, uh, to talk about what small businesses need to do, how they can uh, secure money to keep their businesses afloat. Uh, we have had everything from subject area experts to all kinds of Zoom meetings and calls to be able to communicate. I'm gonna stop right there because we've done a lot of things, but these are just a few of those things that we've done. Now, you, you have done a lot and I know uh, that the community is really appreciated, particularly the COVID um, survival kits, for lack of a better word, that, that you've, uh, programming that y'all put out, I think has been very helpful. I've had a number of people uh, tell me that uh, that's been a, a great service uh, that y'all provided. Uh, let me ask you this while we're talking about economic development. From your perspective, what do you, what do you think is the, the greatest uh, attribute resource that Memphis has in attracting new business? And then at the, on the other side of it, I'm going to ask you the other question is what's our biggest challenge? Well, I think the cost of living has got to be right up there near the top. Uh, and, and that's going to play extremely well for us as we look at people from these dense markets, Washington, D.C., New York City, who are in crisis mode as a result of COVID because everything, everybody's so close together. Many of the younger people and others as well will be looking to southern cities or cities that are less populated but have great advantages. Uh, we have a location advantage. We have a cost of living advantage. We have road, rail, river, and runway, which are advantages certainly for companies to relocate. And when companies relocate, they bring their people with them. Um, we have a wonderful culture here. We've got history. We've got music. Uh, we've got, we're a city of festivals. We've got great food, friendly people. What is not to love about Memphis, Tennessee? Well, you, uh, you, are, you need to get a job as the president of the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. No, I am a native Memphian. I love Memphis. Not that we don't have our share of issues, but I think too many times we look at the issues and the challenges, but we don't even talk about the great assets that we have. And I think, you know, our mayor has provided a lot of great leadership. Uh, I know this COVID uh, virus has been very challenging and all the health department statistics and, you know, the reopening phases, but he has done a really good job of, of being measured and keeping in mind that he wants to protect the citizens, although he also wants businesses to get back to work. So it's a delicate balance and not everybody's going to always agree with the decisions, but I really do think he has the best interest of the community at heart. Well, you know, you talk about the people of Memphis. I think you're, you're, you're right. You know, I, I suppose everybody thinks their hometown uh, has the best people, but you know, we really do have the best people here in Memphis. They're, they're generous, they're compassionate, they're friendly. And you don't, you don't see that every place you go. 
You don't. And what I will also say is I, you know, one year I had uh, my niece from Charlotte, North Carolina come down and I was in a meeting and the mayor came in and stopped and talked. She looked at me, was that the mayor? I said, yes. She said, how, how the mayor know you? How, why would the mayor? I said, look, in Memphis, mayors speak to people, <laughs> you know, mayors build relationships with people and their constituency. So she was amazed that, you know, we had that kind of connection to folks, but that speaks to the relationships that are really highly valued by people in this marketplace. It's not that the big I and the little you, it's that people treat you as if you are a contributing citizen to Memphis. And no matter where people are in the spectrum of socioeconomic class, everybody has something to contribute. I might not have what you have. I don't know the law at all, but I know I can go to someone who knows the law you know, and somebody might not know the history of the National Civil Rights Museum. I used to teach as well. They may not know how to be an instructor. But the, the reality is, is we can always find somebody who is a great resource, who won't mind helping and advising. I, I love Memphis because that is the city that we live in. And I just want the best word. And I want to help drive whatever the transformative changes that we need in some small way if I can contribute to that, I'd like to do it. And what's the biggest challenge? I think the biggest challenge is understanding how to manage a city with not a lot of opportunities to grow revenue. Uh, we, we, don't have, um, we don't have a lot of other things that other cities have. We don't have a tax, you know, uh, 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 an employee tax, a state tax. We don't have... Uh, additional sources of revenue. We had property tax. We don't want to increase that anymore. That's a detractor for business. We don't have sales tax now uh, because, you know, we just, the public voted to allow that money to go elsewhere. So we don't have a lot of ways to be able to raise revenues to support the needs of the city. And that's particularly trying when you're trying to finalize a budget for the city and the county and you realize that you've expended a lot of your resources to be able to help us get through this pandemic. Uh, and you've got money that may be coming from the federal government, but that in no way is gonna cover your shortfall. So the one of the challenges is, you know, certainly the piece that speaks to how do we then generate more revenue uh, so that we have it in Memphis. And I think also, one of the challenges is education, sort of understanding how to get education right, uh, how to offer opportunities. Um, we used to have vocational education long years ago. I'm telling my age now. Uh, but we used to have vocational education where if you were not interested in going to college, you could take vocational education and go out and get a job. And that job would allow you to take care of your family. I think that's coming back, though. I think we're realizing that Everybody is not going to college. Everybody is not going to, they don't have the aptitude to go, nor the interest, for, frankly. And you can be a great electrician or a great plumber. Uh, you can be a great pipe fitter and make a really great living for yourself and your family. So the opportunity to really include that kind of education all the way from high school to, you know, uh, you know, Tennessee Tech or more tech or other TCAT, other technical forms of education. Southwest Tennessee has a, a lot of programs. 
you know, that's really something that we have got to refocus and double our efforts on so that those young people who end up being opportunity youth graduate from high school don't have anything to do but go to a minimum wage job and then that's not enough for them to take care of a family of four so they have to get two jobs so their kids don't have the guidance that they need it's a cycle so we've got to figure out how to break that cycle and uh, ensure that people have the education that will allow them to also get out of high school and get a good paying job. Well, speaking of background and opportunity, um, you said you were a native Memphian. Uh, which, uh, wh where'd you go to high school? That's a, that's a Memphis question. <laughs> it is. I went to Melrose High School in the heart of Orange Mound. And you all may not know, I lived in the Beltlands, which was the northern suburb of Orange Mound, uh, just not a stone's throw away from the fairgrounds and the uh, the stadium and the Coliseum. So I could look off my porch when I was smaller, look kid, and hear the sounds of the fairgrounds in the background. Uh, so I went to Melrose and I went with that great class that included Larry Finch and Ronnie Robinson and the great team that also went to the University of Memphis. And I went to uh, Memphis, it was then Memphis State, I went to Memphis State. I went to uh, after State, that. Beverly. I don't know what this University of Memphis is, but I went to Memphis State. Me too. Me too. Me too. So uh, I, I did have a, a great education and had an opportunity to start at Holiday Inn Worldwide. So I spent about 19 years there, worked in Hartford, Connecticut, director of the uh, their regional reservation office scheduling process. Uh, was on my way to Columbia because I got accepted in Columbia University uh, in New York, but that city actually went bankrupt. And because we were little stair steps in my family, I knew I couldn't ask my mama for money because she didn't have any money to be able to support me. So I ended up coming back because I couldn't get a, a job and support myself in New York City. Uh, but I came back to Memphis and started a, a pretty significant progression through the corporate organization uh, after 19 years there, uh, Holiday Inn was really bought by Bass PLC out of London and relocated to Atlanta. And I was asked to take a package to go, but I told him, listen, Atlanta has a lot of smart people. Memphis needs a few more, so I'm staying at home. Uh, plus, Howard told me he wasn't going with me. So that was the <laughs> other <laughs> decisive factor. Howard is my husband, and he said he wasn't relocating. So uh, after that, uh, Howard and I started our own business, Trust Marketing. We've been in business 28 years here in Memphis, Tennessee. And not long after I went there, I was approached by the folks uh, at the museum, Maxine Smith and Herb Hilliard, about coming in as the interim. Interim ended up being 17 years later. Uh, $44 million raised, uh, renovation, two renovations and an expansion uh, there. and. Uh, after that, I went back to Trust. I retired in 2014 after doing the renovation that you know exists there now, uh, and then um, was approached by the folks at the chamber. So I've had a little bit of education in my background, meaning I taught. Uh, I've had corporate America, 19 years of experience from managing our leadership in the international regions to corporate communications, uh, to strategic planning in that organization, new brand development, worked on brand teams that came up with new concepts like Anthony Inns uh, and the other sub-brands and separate brands. And then uh, I went from um, there, I went from, um, I, I went from Holiday Inn and National Civil Rights Museum and then 
to back to the cha or to the chamber for the first time. The first female and the first African American in 182 years. So uh, it's been a ride. In the year and a half that I've been there, I've seen a lot in a very short period of time. But really and truly, it is my honor to sit in this position because from this position, I do think a lot can be done to help this marketplace, uh, not the least of which is helping us to attract the kinds of businesses that we know will help our business, our business community and our city grow and thrive and create the kinds of jobs we'd like to see people have in Memphis, Tennessee. So I'm, I'm happy to serve in this capacity. I don't know if I can run at this speed forever though, uh, because you know the pandemic has also created a challenge for us since 73% of our revenues are driven by membership and 89% of our membership is small business. So many of them are shuttered. Uh, and, and for those that aren't, we're trying to help them take advantage of all of the stimulus money that's coming down and make sure that we are promoting those that are open. Um, so that's, uh, that was probably a longer version of my career path, but you get to understand a little bit of my experience. Well, let me, let me ask you a follow-up question. Um, talk about how important uh, the Civil Rights Museum is for this city. Oh boy, yeah. I, I, I really do think that, you know, it may have started off in its early days as being certainly the place where Dr. King was killed and where people look at Memphis and say Dr. King was killed there. It has become much more than that now. It really is an important educational institution because the reality for me is this history that is being preserved there is not found in history books. And if you wanna talk about making America a more perfect union, it took much of what happened in that process from 1619 up to the present day to get us where we are now. And I think all people ought to be able to certainly find their voice there because yes, the movement was about uh, African-Americans fighting for their rights, but it wasn't participated in solely by African-Americans. There were whites in there on those Freedom Ride buses. There were Jewish people. There were Native Americans there. There were Asians. There were Hispanics. So we're not the only people that were engaged in that battle. And you don't know that unless you come to the museum and read from those walls and walk through those halls to see what the sacrifices were of just everyday people to drive change, which resulted in, you know, the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act. That would not have been without that particular struggle. So I think it is informative. I think it is powerful. I think now it has gone from just a local museum to become a global touchstone. So people all around the world there are more people that don't look like me that come than look like me that come because they are curious about the history and the parents are curious about wanting them to understand that segment of history to understand what goes into creating a more perfect union for us all in america so it is a true truly one of america's top 10 cultural attractions and that's what usa today said a number of years ago so 
Uh, I was happy to work there. It was a lot of hard work and a lot of heavy lifting. But at the end of the day, it was all worth it. What do you think it says about this community that um, a woman who grew up in Orange Mound uh, is now the president of the Chamber of Commerce? You know, the action alone uh, makes a powerful statement. Um, and I would say that if I can do it, because my family was not a wealthy family, by no means were we privileged. I didn't learn until later that we were in middle class. We were really <laughs> on the fringes of being poor. Uh, but my daddy always told me that you got to work for what you get. Nobody's going to give you anything. And he always said, you can do as well, if not better than anybody else, but you must apply yourself. You've got to take advantage of learning and educating yourself and exposing yourself to the things that will help you in life. And he fundamentally educated us uh, on solid Christian principles. And, and, you know, that was one thing that was really important to my family and our whole value system was shaped around that. And no matter where we go and what we do, I have two sons now, one lives in New York, one lives in DC. They're always trying to make sure that they are anchored wherever they are. And I think that helped us a lot, but it says that if I can do it, a poor child who grew up in the Beltlands, the Northern suburbs of Orange Mound, went to Melrose High School, if I can be viewed differently, through a different lens as capable, then anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. But the fact is that there needs to be the kind of guidance, and you need to speak into our young people, and we need to care about them. My husband and I have adopted kids from public housing. They've come to live with us and travel with us, and now the same kids, and, and not formally, the same kids that we exposed because we cared to our family and travel and all of that, now have a college degree. Nobody in their family ever went to college. They have a college degree right now, and one of them has a job as a state probation officer because he majored in criminal justice. And so what I'm saying is we just got to care enough. You know, we got to care enough to want to make a difference in the life, because not everybody has two people in their household. I came from a two-household family. I mean, my mom and my dad were in the household with us and really taught us. A lot of these young people just don't know, and they don't feel that anybody really cares. So when you demonstrate that, they owe their lives to you, and they demonstrate that they owe their lives to you, and they want to make good because you have done so much to help them. So it says that anybody can walk this way. Anybody can sit in this seat. Anybody can do even better than I have done. Uh, but they've got to be willing to make some decisions to put in the hard work, do the hard work and the heavy lifting, because it does require that. It sure does. It sure does. And, and your, your point about mentoring other, other kids um, is so important. You know, you talked about being a Christian and uh, one of the the parables of the, the Good Samaritan, there are lots of takes on that, but, but one of them is, is that the Good Samaritan crossed the street, stopped and crossed the street to find out what was going on. And mm -hmm. I think so often in, uh, in our lives is we see need, but we don't stop and cross the street to find out what's going on. And, and more and more people in this town are doing that. And I, 
I applaud you for doing it and we all need to do more of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I recall the words of Dr. King who says, if I don't stop and help that person, uh, what will happen to him? And then he turned around, if I don't stop and help that person, what will happen to me? Right. What will happen to me? So I'm, I'm always cognizant. I, I, my, my friends at the museum always reminded me, don't talk to that homeless person out there. Don't be giving them money because they're going to come back. And when I left, they said the homeless people stood at the windows. Is Miss Beverly coming back? When Miss Beverly coming back? Is she coming back? Oh, shoot, we need Miss Beverly to come back. But that's because I have a generous spirit and a giving heart. And I know I shouldn't do it, but I also know I have to put myself in that. But, but for the grace of God, there go I. If I were in that position, what would I want people to do? Um, so, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's who I am. That's Beverly Robertson. Yeah, I think uh, the times we're living through right now kind of tell all of us that uh, we're not entitled to anything and um, we, we really can't count on tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Um, as this year started out, I don't think anybody anticipated that uh, we'd, we'd have this lack of in, uh, industrial progress as we've got because of this quarantine. Uh, but you, you make do with it and, and you got businesses that are, that are doing well and you've got some businesses that are not doing well and that has a lot to do with their attitude uh, towards uh, dealing with the situation rather than complaining about it. That's true and, what, and I don't know that you know this, Alan, but between March and now, we have had 24 requests for information on Memphis. So you know what that says? That says that businesses are looking our way. And I think post-COVID, we're going to see some movement against that uh, because we are continuing to get inquiries. We're continuing to follow up on those inquiries. We have a couple of really hot prospects, you know, right now in the pipeline who really are inching closer to making a decision. So I want you to know that others are looking at Memphis. You know, Memphians sometimes look at Memphis from a negative lens. I always look at my city from a positive lens. No matter where I go, I am always speaking and talking about Memphis, Tennessee. And if more of us would stop talking down about our city, we could elevate our city in the mind's eye of the people. And if you stop talking down and try to do something about crime. In my own neighborhood, we do things. You know, we don't just talk about it. You know, we build relationships with the police. And, and they come to our uh, uh, night out in the community or if we're doing a neighborhood festival. So we create a relationship with them and they become partners in the community. So I, I think it's, it's, it's time out for talking down about Memphis. Let's speak well of the city in which we live, the city that provides a good living for us and our families. What's, how, why would you run down or discount or marginalize the city that supplies, provides the supply for you and your family? So I don't do that. And I tell people, don't talk bad about Memphis around me. I, I don't need to be around people who talk bad because that's not something I'm interested in hearing. Yes, we have the same problems that all urban markets have. They're no, they're no worse than any other major urban market. In fact, with these activists in Memphis this time, every other city big has burned. But our activists have been thoughtful because they didn't want to see the city burn. Now, that says a lot to me about them 
and it says a lot to me about the city in which we live. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, uh, here's my exit question to you, Beverly, and, and you may have already touched on some of this, but um, what do you, be a prognosticator for me, what do you think, uh, Mem- where do you think Memphis will be in, in a year or two from, from now? Um, I think what we're going to see in Memphis is a much more skilled workforce, particularly on the technical skill side. Um, I, I would love to think that we've become a location for some big technical companies uh, to relocate here because of low cost of living, the location of it, uh, the assets of the marketplace. I'd like to see us become a hub for some aspect. And we have the opportunity to do that. You got FedEx, they, they are gonna have a lot of robotics here. We can attract foreign robotics companies to this marketplace and artificial intelligence. I see us being able to utilize a mega site for really huge businesses like a big sort of car manufacturing company uh, to be on that site. That means you got thousands of employees that have good paying jobs there and you have areas around it developed and built up. So you see a thriving metropolis in the marketplace. Uh, It becomes increasingly more diverse. One thing I will tell you is that we've got a lot of in-migration now. We may have out-migration to places like Mississippi, but young people are coming into Memphis by leaps and bounds from Nashville, Tennessee, from Texas, from Washington, D.C., and they don't look like me. So they're diversifying the marketplace and they're bringing a measure of intelligence to the marketplace. And we got that data from uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, whose researchers said, look, yeah, you guys have some out migration, but you got a heck of a lot of in migration too, from young people who are coming here, who love the music, love the culture. They don't make a difference in people. They see that it's an opportunity for them to grow and to demonstrate their talents. I see Memphis as being um, a mecca for entrepreneurs, too, because a lot of them love the entrepreneurial side versus the big company, corporate company side, and they're starting their own businesses. So I see that. I see us being a center for ag tech. You know, we've got um, Indigo Ag here. Uh, We have uh, the uh, center out east. Uh, What is it? Agri-Center? We've got the Agri-Center out there. So we are perfectly positioned to take advantage of the technology that is related to agriculture uh, and the replication of seeds. Uh, So I see us being a center for that. I see good things ahead for Memphis. I see good things ahead for Memphis. And I'm not going anywhere. I hope you aren't either. After after that, Beverly, I'm ready to double down uh, in Memphis. You certainly have got the right job because you're doing a great job as, as our chief salesperson. And um, uh, I, I think you're doing a great job. And, and I'm looking forward to, to uh, Memphis realizing your vision. I'd love in two or three years to, to be where you think we're going to be. And if we work hard, we can get there. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And thank all of you for listening. Um, if they have any questions that they can ask, they can send them to you, Alan, and I'll be able to respond to them. Very good. Very good. Uh, Beverly, again, I appreciate it. This has been one of our best shows, and I uh, appreciate you. And uh, my guest has been Beverly Robertson, the president of the uh, Greater Memphis Chamber of Commerce. And uh, I appreciate everybody listening.